This episode is brought to you by the Association of U.S. Catholic Priests. How can Catholic people prepare for this year's election? John Carr and renowned speakers will help us think. Vatican Nuncio Christophe Pierre will help us pray. Register for the Association of U.S. Catholic Priests June Assembly at auscp.org. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I am once again all by myself in studio. Uh, Zach is uh, taking some time with his family in Ohio this week, so we do not have a new show for you. Um, as you guys know, we've been working hard since January to keep Jesuitical going in a time of transition, um, and part of that has been thinking about what we want the future of Jesuitical to look like. So we've been experimenting, and we we want to keep bringing you a really great show. So over the next couple weeks, uh, we might be throwing in some some reruns, uh, some throwbacks to our favorite episodes, which we are doing this week with Cyrus Habib. We first interviewed Cyrus back in May 2018. He is the 16th lieutenant governor of Washington State. He is a super interesting guy. Uh, if you're a longtime listener of the show, I'm sure you remember Cyrus. He is a three-time cancer survivor. He's been fully blind since he was eight years old. And he is the first Iranian-American to hold a statewide office in the U.S. Uh, and we had a really great conversation with him uh, two years ago that I think is still relevant given the current political climate. I don't know about you guys, but I'm kind of disheartened by politics in the U.S. right now. We're in the midst of a messy primary season. Um, uh, we just got out of the impeachment trial. So I just re-listened to our Cyrus episode, and it was really refreshing. He is such a dedicated public servant, um, and he brings his Catholic faith into his work in a really profound and moving way. So here is our interview with Lieutenant Governor Cyrus Habib. So today we're excited to welcome Lieutenant Governor Cyrus Habib. He is an American politician, lawyer, and professor, and is the 16th and current Lieutenant Governor of Washington, Washington State, that is. Welcome to Jesuitical. The real Washington. Thank the you so much. The real Washington. Good to be here with you. So just to be clear, how should we re address you during this interview? Lieutenant Governor or... I would love it if you called me Cyrus. Okay, cool. Yeah. So we'll address Lieutenant Governor is just a lot of syllables. <laughs> yeah, and you can't like... Do you ever like... go by LG? Yeah, people sometimes, people will be like LG. Yeah, I like the, LG. Like, cool. in, it's, cool but it's more like... Yeah. Third person, they might say the LG was here. That's cool. It's a the real weird LG to your face. So, so next week we can talk about how yeah. LG was. Here. Remember back when the LG was was gave such a great interview. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So so what what does a lieutenant governor do in the state of Washington? We know we know it's a little different in every state, but what do you do, Cyrus? Yeah, it's different in every state. So um, in 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 our state in Washington, the lieutenant governor is president of the Senate. So kind of the the 
analog to the Speaker of the House. I run the chamber, I call on senators, um, and I do play a role in deciding which measures get voted on as well. Then I, I fill in for the governor whenever he leaves the state. Uh, so for most governors, that's about 60 to 70 days a year. Because oh, wow. even if he leaves for five, like, even if he goes over to Portland, uh, which is just across for those who you know, don't know, just across the border from the Washington, Washington State. DC bubble. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's, so even if he goes, you know, for, for half an hour, uh, I'm the governor during that time. Uh, and then I also run my own uh, small agency, the Office of the Lieutenant Governor, and we focus on uh, a few different things, in- including um, access to higher education, uh, international trade and economic development, and disability and veteran uh, uh, issues. Have any, like, crises happened while you were acting governor? No, and I'd, I'd like to just take a moment to recognize that, that uh, w- during every time I've been lieutenant, go- I've been acting governor, nothing has ever gone wrong yes. uh, That's right. in the state of Washington. So, so oh, great yeah, record. On great that. record on that. <laughs> Undefeated. Um, but it does happen. I mean, for my predecessor was acting governor when um, we had a, a terrible mudslide um, that uh, when the, the, the president called a state of emergency. Um, and sent in, um, you know, FEMA folks. I mean, it was a, it was a big deal, and I, I can't remember where the governor was at the time, but the lieutenant governor had to basically manage the whole situation. So, so we do get trained and and uh, are prepared to do that. Yeah, and so can you tell us a little bit about your journey to getting to be the lieutenant governor? You've you're you've done a lot in your in your three decades. <laughs> Well, you know, yes. how old are you? You're only I'm 36. Okay, yeah, I'm right. 36. And you've been like every um, kind of scholar there can yeah. be: Rhodes Scholar, Truman Scholar. I've spent. I <laughs> have. Scholar. I have. Um, you know, I, I was pretty uncertain about what I wanted to do when I when I grew up, and I still am figuring it out. Uh, but I knew. So I went through a period where I wanted to be an English professor. Um, and so I studied uh, English literature. I, I went and got a graduate degree um, in post-colonial English literature. Uh, I then decided with a little bit of prodding from my parents um, that uh, maybe I should take all that love of writing and reading and um, and kind of convert it or leverage it into a professional degree. So I went to law school um, and, and I became really passionate about um, representing those whose voices hadn't been heard. Um, I did a good amount of that in, in, in law school. Um, I went to a private law firm, but I, I got to do a lot of pro bono work. Um, and then as I did that, and I, especially after President Obama was elected, and I, I kind of got it in my head that maybe someone with a Middle Eastern sounding name might actually be electable, mm-hmm. um, I uh, decided when there was a vacancy in the state House of Representatives, I decided to to run for it. And, you know, there were a couple of things. One is that I, uh, you know, people with disabilities, uh, so your, your listeners may not know um, yet, but I, I became blind when I was eight years old due to childhood cancer. Um, and uh, I, I often joke that because that was in 1989, it does mean that all eight years I could see. All eight of those years took place in the 1980s. So all my visual memories are still from the 80s. So everyone still looks <laughs> yeah. like Cindy Lauper and Boy George. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Is there a decade you'd rather have your memories from? Like looking back? No, I think the 80s, uh, look, I think the 80s, if you're going to have kind of um, visual memories that will last a lifetime, mm-hmm. uh, I think 
the eighties are kind of nice, big, and sensational. Very yeah. evocative. That's yeah. True. Um, That's true. Yeah. 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 Like 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 I remember going into like a restaurant with my parents as a kid um, in Maryland, and there were like electric stars. Um, so. Yeah, that's that's something to keep with you. Um, so so I so I grew up with a disability, and and as a result, um, you know, my life outcomes could have been very different um, if my public schools had not been well funded, um, if my parents hadn't taught me to and, and advocated for me and taught me to advocate for myself, and if it weren't for state services that I received. So as I kind of grew up and grew older, I realized there's so many people that rely on these services and that rely on our public schools and, and who's, I mean, you know, there's, you know, obviously there's, there's uh, every year just in my state, 1.1 million uh, kids in the public school system. Um, a good percentage of them have some kind of disability. Uh, and so I wanted to run for the legislature to work on those issues and to maybe bring a kind of a different perspective to the legislature, not, not just someone who cares about these things, but someone who's actually been a recipient of those services. And would you say there's a a discrepancy between the number of people with disabilities in the legislature versus the number of constituents with disabilities? Oh, I mean, it's, it's, it's massive. I mean, I, I, I can count on the fingers of one hand, the number of legislators out of 147 in Washington who self-identify as having a disability. Um, and, uh, yeah, like there, there's, there's, you know, there's one legislator who has hearing loss in one year. Um, you know, so I'm not minimizing any of that, but, but there are not, uh, given that, you know, there are over 50 million Americans, uh, with a disability. Uh, it's, I think it will be, uh, of probably of all minority groups, it will probably be the one that is underrepresented the longest Um, because there is a mix of, you know, uh, you know, with, with a lot of other discrimination um, it's, it's basically just perception, right? It's just, it's just bigotry, uh, a lack of education with disability. There are actual um, costs to a commitment to inclusion. So, for example, uh, as lieutenant governor, I, I, I mentioned that I serve as president of the Senate, so I call on senators to speak. Uh, well, how do I know which one wants to be recognized? Uh, other than the fact that politicians basically always want to speak. Um, <laughs> you know, so the way it would normally happen is a senator stands up and the, the lieutenant governor would see them and, and call on them. Um, well, that obviously wasn't going to work. And so we thought about, well, should we have like a staffer just, you know, sit up there and just like whisper the name of every person. It, it just seemed so wasteful of a human being's <laughs> time and labor, right? Mm-hmm. So we created a system where there's a touchscreen on every senator's desk. And when they want to speak, they stand and press this, uh, you know, this button on their screen that says request to speak. It sends their name up to a computer where I'm standing at the front of the chamber, and it is presented on a Braille display in real time. Mm. So I can see, you know, I can feel in Braille, you know, Senator so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so, and then I can call on them in the order that makes sense for the debate. But that costs money to install. And so what would a world look like? What would a public education system look like if we treated every kid like they were the president of their own Senate, right, in their classroom? Yeah, so that's a concrete change that you were able to bring because of your life experience um, uh, to the Senate. Is there is there something, a piece of legislation or a change you've made um, either in the schools in Washington or uh, that tried to, like, 
give yeah. those benefits to other yeah so other in the right so in the in the arena of um of of kind of disability rights and um and equity one of the things that was made known to me and which kind of resonated in my own personal life was that um you know you have to qualify for disability accommodations when you go to um uh, college and uh, so what was happening though was that you had students who would go to a community college and then transfer they'd want to transfer to a university um, and they'd have to go back and do all the qualifications all over again right to go to a doctor to maybe get tested to do all these things um, just to continue studying uh, and you know, you know it seems like a small barrier but already uh, you know, people with disabilities are facing so many challenges, you know, even just getting the, their transit figured out to get to school, um, that it really didn't seem to make any sense. Like, like I'm not going to be any less blind in September right. um, <laughs> when I transfer to the University of Washington than in June when I'm at, you know, uh, Everett Community College. So uh, so we said, let's change that. And, and of course, you know, it's tough to do even small things when they're institutional players. Um, so we, we began a process and, and uh, instructed all of these institutions to create one universal common system for all of these kids. So, so there's kind of targeted things like that on a higher level I would say where my experience has informed the work I'm doing um, is around the work we're doing on higher education. Um, and I know this will be near and dear to your uh, lay, but, you know, work with Jesuit hearts um, <laughs> is that, um, you know, there's a, there's a sentence that I hear a lot from politicians in both parties. Uh, and that sentence is, quote, college isn't for everyone. And, and you hear it, and it's not said, you know, with malice. Um, it's said with oftentimes a lot of compassion. Uh, but when you ask that person whether they themselves went to college, you know, it turns out that they did. Uh, and then when you ask them what they do for a living, it turns out they do something that requires a college degree. And then when you ask what their kids are doing, what their plan is for their kids, they're also sending their kids to college or plan to. So it's so then it's like, who are you talking about, right? Who are these people for whom college isn't necessarily for? Um, and I think we know that that could have been me. Um, you know, it's kids in who may be from communities of color uh, or, or rural white areas or tribal country or uh, kids with disabilities. Um, and so we are really working hard in my office to try to turn that theory on its head and to say, let's give every kid the belief in themselves and the preparation and the access to go to college. And then, you know what? If they're sitting there, they've got college admissions letters, you know, acceptance letters and the money to pay for it. And, and then they decide, I don't want to go to college. More power to them. You know what I mean? Then they're making right. a decision from a place of strength. Um, but, you know, it, it always baffles me when people say, you know, I talked to this 15-year-old kid and she just doesn't think college is for her. She just doesn't want to go down. I'm like, well, you know what? She wasn't born that way, right? That yeah. kid has had 15 years of the world telling her what she's good for. Yep. So, um, not to mention you know, all the, you know, everyone ha has figured out what they want or should or should not do at 15. Right, right, right. 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 Exactly. <laughs> then I'm really in trouble. Here I am 21 years later, still under it. So speaking of sort of like resistance, have you encountered resistance in the legislature to uh, these types of initiatives and programs that you want to put forward or even to implementing a system that uh, costs money where you can, you know, 
know which uh, senators want to speak and whatnot. Yeah, I, I would say, um, so I, I tend to, to group um, political pushback into three categories. Um, one is um, we agree on the problem, we agree on the solution, but not on its relative level of priority. Like, ideally, we would give every kid free preschool. Like, we all agree that that would be a good thing to do. Um, but we've got to do this other thing over here. There's finite amount of money, and, and we've got lots of problems. The second category is we agree on the problem, but we disagree on the solution. You know, Democrats and Republicans may both agree that we need to grow jobs uh, or that, like, you know, North Korea is a threat, but there's just different solutions um, that people feel very strongly. And then the worst situation is where, like, you don't even agree that this is a problem. Mm-hmm. Right. Th- those are the most bitter um, fights. And, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, with this issue of college isn't for everyone, um, it does sometimes fall in that category because there's actually people who think that it is elitist um, and, and wrongheaded and actually cruel to young people to force them into thinking that college is something that they ought to do such that they would think of themselves as failures if they didn't go. Um, and so... What I've really tried to do, um, because I, I started out, like, being a lawyer, I started out wanting to argue about this all the time with people. Um, and I sometimes w- still will do that. But then I realized, you know what? There's a lot of room for us to work together. So you might think that an apprenticeship is a better, um, is a better model than, than a traditional college. And I don't need to prove you wrong for us to figure out a way for kids or for anyone to get college credit when doing an apprenticeship because then we both win, right? Then like you're giving, you know, you're kind of elevating um, the the trades um, and and opening pathways that are non-conventional and aren't the kind of Ivy covered, you know, quadrangle reading Aristotle. Um, but then I also am, am, I feel satisfied that if that job is made obsolete because of technology or trade uh, or the person gets an injury or something like that, that, you know, they'll have a pathway to a college degree mm-hmm. um, and be able to be resilient in the economy. And um, so I'm challenging myself to try to find more ways to, when there is pushback, to, to, kind, of, um, to kind of work within the ideology of, of, the, of, the, of, of my interlocutor. So would you say, Cyrus, that your faith has a lot to do with that, with you? You're very passionate about the work that you do, but do you think the ability to kind of meet people instead of just running away from this pushback has a lot to do with your faith? And how does, I, it, it, how does your faith overall just sustain you in the way I think that you wanting do? to do that, I think you have to first, you have to want to do it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I think that definitely comes um, from from my Catholic faith. and And I would say increasingly... Um, thanks to Father Martin and and others uh, from the kind of the the Ignatian influence of of discernment and uh, and even the process of praying the examine and thinking through you know were there opportunities that I missed what was that person really saying when we had that conversation were they actually was there a way that that could have gone differently um, so I definitely think that that almost on a meta level um, is is helpful because, you know, you get so passionate about the things that you're working on that sometimes you actually enjoy the conflict um, mm-hmm. 
and it can feel really satisfying to score points. Yeah. It sounds um, like you're yeah. saying Ignatian spirituality could be like the way we solve political polarization in this country. <laughs> I think it's a. I think you'd be. I, I think it could be a huge part of the solution. I think, and whether it's whether it's the, the spiritual exercises or other traditions for other folks. Um, just the, the being contemplative, being reflective, thinking about um, how did that encounter go? Yeah. Uh, Pope Francis has said that politics is a noble activity, which I think for a lot of people who maybe aren't looking at state politics, but are looking at what's coming out of Washington can kind of be a surprising thing to hear. Um, could could you talk a little bit about like what how how state or local politics um, differs from like the kind of toxic partisanship we see on the national stage and like maybe some lessons we could gain from that. <laughs> yeah, it it's better. I don't know that I would say it's so much better that it is a um, a model um, because we definitely have toxicity in um, in state government as well. Um, I think having a shorter session. Uh, you know, so most legislatures are not full time. They're not full, you know, year round, um, I think means that you get people who are not, um, at least at that point, uh, only career politicians. Um, and I think that ironically, um, and I don't, I want to be very careful cause I'm not, I, I don't oppose, um, transparency into the federal government. Um, like I, I, I think C-SPAN does amazing work. I think all, we need much better and more reporting and you guys do some of that reporting and others, but you know, at the federal level, because it's so high profile, particularly the Senate, right. Where, you know, they're almost celebrities in, in some ways, um, you know, there's, there's such an incentive to, um, to uh, be the to posture and to be the yeah I'm being very yeah. careful right you know but to <laughs> or be, like to, play a character right like you are you have a brand and you've got to stick exactly to it. Yeah. exactly so you know like Senator Warren she has her brand Senator Sanders has his brand um, you know and and the system kind of incentivizes that um, right now um, and it doesn't mean that those people don't have legitimate uh, policies or ideas um, but. I think what you find as you get to lower levels of government is um, people who basically do the work, not expecting to have, you know, 5,000 retweets because they had some really clever, you know, uh, you know, line on Trump, right, for the day. Do you think so. there's something the media could do better to, like, disincentivize that? Or what? To, what's a good type of transparency that the media can work towards? I think doing profiles on senators and, and representatives and, and other elected officials at different levels who are doing really good work. Um, you know, uh, for example, b both of our senators, uh, Patty Murray and Maria Cantwell um, in Washington State, I think are, are workhorses. You know, they're not show horses. Um, I mean, Patty Murray brokered with Paul Ryan um, the, the the most kind of significant bipartisan budget deal of the decade. She brokered with Lamar Alexander a big education bill, bipartisan education reform bill um, that both sides um, could be proud of. You know, but people don't know Patty Murray that well nationally, right? And there's a reason because she's working so hard um, and she's not running for president. Um, and so... I think the more we can do profiles of of, of those folks, 
Because um, what you see already now, right, is profile. I mean, you guys, I'm sure, are seeing this profiles of potential presidential nominees. Right, yeah. right. It's, it's already been happening. To someone. Right. Yeah. right, it's already been happening, and we're two and a half years away from that election. So, do so. you do you have any models as far as politicians who you think do a good job of integrating their faith in public life? Joe Biden. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I was why. just talking with Father Malone about that earlier. I mean, he's just so real. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just so real. He's um, he is he is an imperfect human being. Mm-hmm. He's a flawed human being. We all are, right? Mm-hmm. But he he acknowledges it and even kind of with humor sometimes with remorse um his shortcomings but he just is so present and real um with constituents which you know for 8 years meant all of us um and um and i and i think that's what allows him to speak to americans across racial uh, and and gender lines and and so many other different um, you know dividing lines. One final question for you: um, If you could canonize anyone, living or dead, Catholic or non-Catholic, who would it be and why? I'm ready for this. Uh, <laughs> as a listener, as an avid listener, that, um, we love to hear that. Yeah, by the way. yeah. That so many of our guests are just this. like always stumped when we ask yeah. that question. Yeah. Uh, so we're excited. Go ahead. Um, Desmond Tutu. I'm oh, I'm going. Okay. I'm going. I'm going with an Anglican, okay. um, <laughs> but it's going to be okay because when when the Anglicans come into full communion with Rome, that's right. People yeah. have uh, baptized will, Cleopatra, so I uh, think we're on safe ground yeah. with Desmond Tutu. <laughs> yeah, although, but maybe not. I mean, maybe it's more controversial for maybe. some people. Might be. I mean, I think there are elements of of um, of his positions that I, I'm sure would be controversial. Uh, I know are controversial with some Catholics um, because there was an there was a. Uh, an incident where uh, he was invited to sp- to speak at Gonzaga, um, and there were Catholics who uh, agitated against that uh, because of some of his views. Uh, but but you, you think they're wrong because? Well, no, but I but 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 to my mind, um, when I think about a person living r- right now uh, who had such a powerful effect on a country. Um, a, even a continent, um, the and the world through advocating nonviolence, um, and just has lived a grace-filled and faith-based life, and managed to navigate politically difficult situations, including uh, life-threatening ones, but done it in a way that elevates God. Um, I think uh, Desmond Tutu is prime ready for uh, canonization. All right. Awesome. All right, Saint, Saint Desmond Tutu. Tutu. Saint Tutu. <laughs> I like Saint awesome. Tutu better. <laughs> Awesome. All right. Cyrus, thank you so much for coming on the show. This means a lot. And where can people learn more about uh, your work or perhaps maybe some Washington state wines that you provided us with? (laughs) Yeah, I was glad. Yeah. Where was the plug? Yes. Uh, It's right here. here. It's right here. (laughs) So Cyrus brought us a gift, uh, wine from the state of Washington, which I was surprised to learn that the second most second largest wine producing state in the country yeah and we are we're drinking substance yeah yes. i Cabernet. love the name <laughs> yes um and uh but yeah i'm i'm on facebook and twitter um at cyrus habib and my official account which has kind of less snarky uh but more <laughs> lieutenant gubernatorial content is at waltgov okay so that's your double life that's, that's right okay. that's right <laughs> awesome thank you so much yeah, thank, thank you, you so much cyrus thanks guys
Jesuitical is produced by Colleen Dully. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. Production help from Izzy Seneschal and Tucker Redding. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless, and I will see you in a few weeks. 